Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. Our top story this week is the shooting in Thursday at Umpqua Community College in Oregon that left 10 people dead and I believe seven wounded, including the, uh, including the shooter. Uh, this, of course, is something that's happened, as everyone would agree, far too many times uh, in, in recent history. And uh, we see the predictable responses, I think, calls on the left for uh, more gun control or some gun control, uh, making access to firearms more difficult. And uh, on the right, uh, as Jeb Bush said, well, you know, stuff happens. So, right. Well, Jeb, uh, Jeb, Jeb Bush, we can, this is going to be a sort of a sideline of that discussion is that the Bush family's uh, penchant for for gaffes and just sort of uh, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Even though I, I, I think on the substantively, uh, I mean, he, he backed it up. It's just a a verbal gaffe, which again, the Bush family uh, is, is incredibly prone to. But yes. well, he did correct himself. He said later yeah. that uh, he said things happen, and that made it so much better. I think right. so. You know, that was yeah. very. Very helpful. But yes, let's get to the uh, the main point of it, obviously, is uh, uh, from the left, and I agree with this view, is that the problem is that there are just too many people who have too many guns in this country. Uh, and, you know, and I'm, I, this is something that, you know, I really wanted the weekend to have sort of a serious conversation on because I, I agree with you. This is – there's something – different going on here and you don't see this in in uh, other countries or maybe it's just not reported enough i i really do think we would hear about it uh if if this happened other places um but it seems to be a uniquely american problem at this point and and i don't know i guess i guess i put it to you is uh there's there these calls for more gun control and so forth but what exactly do i mean does the left mean by that uh, and and I guess my other thought is, you know, the, the left was big on pushing things like gun-free zones, which apparently are not honored by the people who are going to carry the guns. Go I, figure. You know, yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of a problem. Is all right if we're going to address this problem, um, how how would how would you go about doing it from a from a gun control type? Uh, uh, right view. Well, I think that the first thing to point out is that you're absolutely right that we are very different from the rest of the world. Our civilian fire firearm ownership rate, 88.8 guns per 100 people. That's by far number one in the world. Number two is... I actually thought it was higher than that. Uh, well, it's still 88. I, I've, you know. I've seen different numbers, but... that The, yeah, the last I've... numbers, and number two is 54.8, and that's in Yemen. So we're right. we're lapping Yemen in there, and that I suppose, and it's it's uh, another way to look at it. Uh, the U.S. population makes up roughly a little over four and a half percent, or right around four and a half percent of the world population. Yet we own around forty-two percent of all privately held firearms. So we got ourselves a lot of guns in this country. Uh, the second stat I I differ with you on. I think that's an apples and oranges sort of situation, just because of 
you have to look at the the countries to which you're being compared and um uh, you know look there are a lot of countries where uh you know first of all it's, it's not economically feasible secondly the government uh you know for example china uh which has the world's biggest population obviously is is not big on uh not keen on private ownership of firearms sure so i think i think the second statistic is skewed but okay um but you know to the, to the first point we have a whole lot of guns and i i i've seen numbers from um again it's in, it's we're talking hundreds of millions right um, and i think and the argument is pretty simple i think from from the left, and I think a lot of moderates don't necessarily disagree with this either, is that uh, there's a pretty strong link between having more guns and having more gun fatalities, because after all, guns are designed to kill people. I mean, that's what they do. They're very good at doing that, and naturally, the more guns you have, the more likelihood you're going to have that someone uses a gun to kill themselves or somebody else, and that's I think that's about as incontrovertible as it gets. And so the simple solution to that is have fewer guns. And this, I think, is the, you know, the program that, that, that the left has been pushing for a number of years with the absolutely uh, no success. In fact, strangely enough, since the Sandy Hook massacre, 20 kids being killed, uh, more states have loosened gun laws then strengthen their gun laws, which to me is well, just what, a travesty. Well, let's, let's take a step back. Um, first of all, what, what would you mean by loosened? And and I guess the, the, the issue, and you sort of hit, hit the nail on the head right now, is the left's goal is to say, have fewer guns. Yes. Um, so, you know, that, that would seem to be at odds with the Second Amendment. It sort of says you have the right to keep and bear arms. Um uh, they would just like it, it would sort of like saying you have the right to be you have the right to free speech. We just wish you would not talk so much. Um, sure. So what, I, what what is the what is the you know, and I, and I think, look, we're not talking about regulation. We're talking about having having fewer. We're talking about confiscation, essentially, or um, I don't uh, think we're talking about confiscation because that clearly would run afoul of the, the Second Amendment. But I think we're talking about something like, for instance, that uh, Australia did after the Port Arthur thing in uh, 1996 where they had a massive gun buyback program. Uh, they, that would be pretty extreme from a U.S. standpoint, but uh, that's actually getting guns off the streets, but just making it more difficult for people to get guns in the first place. And, you know, you, you make the point about freedom of speech, and I think it's a good I think it's a good analogy. You know, people certainly have the freedom to speak uh, and make political protests and so forth, but when they speak in such a way that incites violence or threatens public safety, that's the instance where speech can be constitutionally constrained and i think the same argument applies for guns and i believe that well, the supreme court would would agree with that but let's talk about australia for a second because because the the gun buyback wasn't the only thing they did they also created a, a licensing system which you had to have a license not just as we we do in a lot of states now to uh, carry a concealed weapon but in order to own a firearm you had to show a show a what was called a genuine reason for owning the firearm, which could not include self-defense. Right, and that um, clearly would not work in in the U.S. context, and that would definitely, I think, uh, run against run up against the Second Amendment. So, yeah, we couldn't do something like that. I don't believe that would withstand judicial scrutiny. So, you know, I, then it comes back to, to the question is, first of all, is the, the problem is, you know, I, 
And the, the, here, here's something in it I'm, I'm having trouble speaking about because it, it is something that I, I, I don't want to take lightly. And, and you know me. I'm not a, I'm not a gun nut. Gun nut. Uh, no, you're not. Um, uh, in, in fact, I, um, you used to be a gun nut. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if I characterize myself as a gun, but I have to say there is something there is a something exhilarating. Is, yes, it's something exhilarating about uh, about firing an automatic grenade launcher from the back of a Humvee. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I I enjoyed that. I did not do that in civilian life. I want to point that out. So that was, <laughs> exactly. I don't I don't have a grenade launcher anywhere in my in my person or anything like that. So, but yes. Yeah, I, and I still, I still am. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an enthusiast, but I understand. You know, on the right, uh, the response seems to be this isn't a gun problem. This is a mental health problem. And I under, I get that argument, right. but I think it's a bogus argument in the sense that uh, there's there's very little we can do to kind of make people non schizoid, you know, mentally healthy. I think that's a well, much that's, that's, bigger and issue. I think that's, that's where, because I'll tell you, this is, this is why it's a little bit of a tough show for me. It may be more interesting because I, I tell you, I don't have any sort of answer. Uh, there, a lot of people on the right agree that, uh, say that more people ought to have more guns because you have, if you have more people, more good guys with guns, uh, that will counteract the bad guys with guns. Uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, I think the idea that we've created these, you know, what are called gun-free zones, and the only person who is safe in the gun-free zone is the gun is the guy who is who is carrying the gun. Um, so that that uh, troubles me. So I think some of these these ideas that have have come up from the left, um, uh, you know, in order to that are supposed to stop gun violence, uh, simply have have not uh, have not worked or. They've been they've been directed a different type of gun violence uh, than than what we're we're right. seeing when we talk about these mass shootings. And, and you're right. And you're right. There are some things that are just ridiculous. The gun free zones thing. I think that's symbolic politics. And of course, no one with a gun is necessarily going to honor that. You're absolutely you know you're absolutely right. And, and also, I think it's fair to point out that uh, that mass shootings, uh, believe it or not, are actually not increasing. It certainly seems that way. But the analysis that have been done show that they're not really increasing. The vast majority of, of deaths from handguns or from guns come from suicides, the vast, right. vast majority. But that's not to say it's still not an issue. Let me give you an example. If Well, no, no, no. It's, it's, it, that's, certainly, that's certainly an issue. Oh, yeah. you, mean, you mean the uh, suicide by gun being an issue? Or you yeah, mean yeah, the exactly. Mass- the suicide by gun issue and the, mass, and the mass gun. I mean, any kind of death by handgun or by gun is an issue. But uh, and clearly we're very different. You know, our gun death rate per 10,000 people is right around a little over 10 per 10,000 compared to the UK where it's 0.23. And that makes a real, a real difference in lives. We're talking about if we had the UK's gun death rate, we'd end up having a little over 32,000 people less per year dead from guns. I mean, and that's, that's a big deal. That's a lot of lives. And to me, it comes down to this is, is the price we pay for our extraordinarily uh, loose, liberal, I hate to call it, liberal gun laws is tens of thousands of lives per year. And that's a price that a lot of Americans are willing to pay, whether they're willing to admit it or not. That's the trade-off. If you want well, that kind I- of freedom to have guns, then you have to say, that's worth that's worth ten, twenty, thirty thousand lives, and if I, if people would be willing to admit that, I think I'd have a little more respect for them. I'd question their morals, but I'd have a little more respect for them. 
I I I I differ with the numbers. I think I think the, the saying uh, f- fewer people. It's it's almost a little bit like. Uh, uh, because of the ubiquity of guns in uh, the U.S. compared to the U.K., I think that's sort of saying, like, uh, you know, very few Ohioans uh, die from shark attacks. Uh, you know, well, sure, because there are more people. guns. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, um, uh, you know, yeah, our, our, our death by, by rhino attacks compared to, you know, uh, places in Africa are, are much, much lower. Um, and I think especially if you're talking about, uh, you know, suicides and, and that sort of thing, uh, I think that's a tough thing to measure. Now, I, I think there's, there's arguments to say that suicides might be easier with a gun as opposed to other methods, e- easier and, and, and more likely to succeed. Um, but, you know, there, there's also plenty of evidence if, if someone wants to kill themselves, they'll, they'll find a, a way to do it, whether it's with a gun or not. So, I mean, I guess, first of all, because I, I, I always dispute the, your, the statistics first. Um, of course, but going but going back to the is is this happening more often uh, than it used to? And I also I would wonder, and this is something I don't know, uh, the percentage of gun ownership in the population. It's uh, uh, over time has that increased or decreased? I, I seem to recall the stats I, I've seen show that it, it's increased, but not a lot right now. It's somewhere between uh, upper 30s and lower 40s percent. So it's a minority of U.S. Uh, US households that actually have guns. But obviously, it's a very vocal and politically active minority that is stirred up on a regular basis by the NRA. And, and another right. thing to point out is that the NRA actually used to be a fairly moderate organization. Uh, in, the, in the 1930s, NRA president was quoted as saying that he did not believe in what he called a promiscuous toting of guns, and he felt they should be restricted and licensed. But then there was the crime, uh, the crime, you know, yeah. That's, that's why they fire us for he's not president. It was that, well, well, I mean, the NRA was like that up until the 60s and the 70s, and crime went up, and uh, people got very concerned, and then there was essentially a, a coup inside the NRA, and the hardliners took over, and really from the late 70s on kind of gives us the NRA that we know and either love or hate today. Well, and, you know, I, I will say, and probably a lot of people don't know this, in, in the world of, of um, gun rights activists, there's the NRA, and then there are also a lot of other organizations that think the NRA is a bunch of pinko commies. Um, who really wow, which is really saying guns. something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, for example, the Gun, gun Owners of America, um, and there are some other more groups that are they're really, uh, I mean, Wackers. really, really out there. Yeah. Um, and... But let's let's talk about the NRA because I think this is something that uh, you you hit on it, and I don't know whether all our listeners always get it. The NRA has a lot of influence, but it's not because of the the typical reasons you think of influence, like uh, you know they spend a lot of money on campaigns, uh, or they donate a lot of money to, to uh, campaign organizations. What they have is a lot of members, and that's right. That's where their their power comes. So it's you know if you you can argue with the NRA and say well, it's a special interest group. Well, yeah, but it's it's uh, it's something that folks are you know. It's a broad based group they're with millions of yeah with millions of members who are willing to go out and vote their convictions. A, a lot of right. what are called single issue voters right. who you know then and, and that's why politicians are very eager to get good grades from the NRA uh, up into you know 
Ted Cruz, what did he do? The thing where where he uh, made bacon on a machine gun or something like that to show how much he loved guns and bacon. I did not see that. And oh, I yeah, did there's, not know there's a video out there. That. There is a video, I think, of Ted Cruz making bacon with a machine gun, and I don't know if I could actually would uh, could could stomach watching the whole thing. But if you if you uh, search for it on YouTube, how, you can find it. How do you how do you do it? I mean, what you just like? I, I would imagine you'd have to shoot a lot of things to heat up the barrel, then throw the bacon right on there. Those the barrels get on. very hot. That would be my guess. So yeah, that would be a. That would be but anyway for for viewers or listeners who are interested. You can check if anyone's try that out there. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, definitely. We'd like to hear. <laughs> let us know how it worked. Yeah. So, but anyway, so um, you were saying sorry. But but uh, you know back no back to the the idea of of what are we going to do if if you're sitting in Congress and the president you know comes on and is is all teary eyed and so forth and says we have to do something, what bill are you going to write? I, I guess that's my that's my question. Um, yeah, you're right. This, let's do something. Um, but, uh, but what, because we, we've done these things like background checks, we've done things, uh, like waiting periods, we've done things, um, uh, like, you know, uh, if you're adjudicated mentally ill, you can't purchase a firearm. We've done things about the types of firearms, the types of ammunition you can, you can buy. Um, and the Obama administration just recently has done a lot of things by executive order, uh, regarding, uh, again, uh, you had talked about this, uh, I think, well, maybe last year, on, um, you know, number of, number of reloadable uh, uh, clips and so forth uh, that, that you can buy at one time. And um, it, it, none of these things would actually affect the shootings that we've, that we've seen right. for the most part. Well, I think we've done a lot of these things, but a lot of these things we've done in a very kind of uh, half-ass way. They haven't been uh, like, like for instance, background checks. It's so easy to get around background checks. The system's not very robust in the first place. And secondly, there's a, a gun, there's that gun show loophole, essentially where private sellers don't have to do background checks. Now that's not the case Everywhere, there are 18 right. states who do have some rules about that, but in the majority of states, it's it's very simple. So I think you know, I think, but but that but that wasn't the case here. Uh, it wasn't the case in uh, in the Aurora uh, theater shooting. Uh, it wasn't the case in um, Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. You're, I mean, you're absolutely it, it wasn't, right. It wasn't the thing of you know, in, in all those all those things saying they're, they're in place. It, those people didn't get these through guns through a gun show uh, gun show loophole. Right. Um, they either took them from someone else in the, the Sandy, Co- Sandy Hook uh, situation, uh, or they bought them and passed a background check. Yeah, and so I think I, I think I mean you're absolutely right, and I think this is where the left is being more than a little disingenuous at times. It. Yeah, well, <laughs> because I, I think the issue is that the only real solution is to have fewer guns. And the only way to do that is to make it a lot harder to get a gun. So it's not enough to have a... In other words, as long as it's easy and convenient and simple to get a gun, then we're going to have this problem. So it's not a question of making the background checks more thorough because most people who are even a little who have mental health issues are going to be able to pass these background checks. It's not like you go into a gun store and there's a psychiatrist to give you a, you know, give you an exam or something right. like that. Right. So I think well, that the what, only what way measures, to, what measures would you put in place to make gun purchasing more difficult? I try to make it about as difficult as the right wants to make getting an abortion. And that, I mean, that's the sort of thing. Have, that would have make a sonogram. A 
<laughs> you know, you know. I mean, no, like, I'm like, saying, like I'm waiting periods. Policy questions. What would you do if you're writing the bill uh, or or drafting the uh, uh, the administrative order that would make it more difficult for someone to buy a gun? I think things like waiting periods, a more extended waiting period, maybe like a couple of weeks at least to make sure someone's not going out and getting a gun and doing something nutso with it, that sort of thing. I think uh, uh, certainly – Again, these, in both cases, it seems these were planned weeks, months in advance. You're right. I mean and so I don't know – really that there's a lot that's going to be able to solve the issue of these. I think it's around 1% of gun deaths that are mass shootings for these people who have these sort of issues. But I think we can certainly, we can certainly preserve people's rights under the second amendment to have firearms, but make it less likely that people are going to buy a firearm impulsively and do something. So I don't know. I don't really think that so there's the, a way. There, there's, the, there's the wonderful uh, Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson buys the gun, and it's a five-day waiting period, but I'm mad now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think people are yeah. certainly politicians and people on the left and the right always use tragedies to push political agendas. That's politically what tragedies are for, and it, it sounds like it's a, a crass sort of thing, but if you ah. want to change anything – that's what you have to do and because that's when the that's when the public is stirred up about these things and so both sides depending on the issue uh manipulate the facts highlight certain things and you know don't highlight other things to try to push their agenda which may or may not be related to the tragedy and so i don't think and that's and that's one of my problems with this yeah go ahead yeah. but so i don't really think that given given the the fact of the second amendment and Given you know uh, the amount of guns that we already have out there right now, I don't think that there is a heck of a lot that we can do. And so that's when we get back to Jeb Bush's unfortunate statement that I agree with you has a lot of truth. Given the culture in this country and given the Second Amendment, we can say, well, stuff happens and stuff is – or things happen and they're horrible things and they're going to continue to happen. And there's right. no solution. I think what Bush was pointing out – uh, maybe, I don't know, is that there's this knee-jerk reaction to say government must do something. And sometimes it really sucks, but there's nothing we really can necessarily do unless we want to look at, you know, solutions like, you know, like changing the Constitution, which actually in this case, I don't know that I would be against, but I'll, but from a political realism standpoint, of course, it just wouldn't happen. Right, not going to happen. Let me. I'm. I'm going to bring in, and this is sort of a a weird conservative response. And I, I don't know that, you know. Uh, again, this is more just me talking, and I'm not trying to represent any position. But you know, the mental health issue is is tremendous in this. Uh, I mean, I think we'd have to agree that uh, for these things to happen, you have to have two things. One is access to guns. Second is someone who is uh, mentally ill. Um, Right or, uh, or, 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 or highly guess, highly upset, someone who's enraged or something like that. You know, yeah. Well, that, but that, you know, I, I'd say even most of the most of these that, that we've seen have not been situations where it is just a one angry impulse uh, type thing. It, it is a planned weeks in advance, and and a lot of times by someone who is not just angry, but as as in the Sandy Hook situation, as as in right. Aurora. Uh, and and apparently here, I mean, is is just really deranged. 
Right, but I think, um, I and mean, that's a good point, but I think in the vast majority of uh, gun-related deaths that it may be less of that and more of a spur of the moment someone happens to have a gun and so that gun is used. Fair enough. But again, that's not the mass shooting issue we're talking about. Right. But to me, that's not um, that's not the most important issue. I mean, not to say that's not important. To me, the important issue is the 99% of gun deaths that aren't related to mass shootings. So you don't care about mass shootings? No, I'm, you know, I'm definitely bastard. not saying that. Yeah. You're, worse than, you're worse than George, uh, than uh, Jeb Bush. Um, no, but something that, that I'd want to hit on, and, and this is something that I don't get, and I haven't done enough research in it to really, you know, look, I'm... I, sort of a passive historian, but uh, we have this this funny gun culture in America. Absolutely. And I think it is pretty unique to to America. And I don't know where it comes from or where it started. And if it's, I mean, maybe it goes back to Concord and Lexington or, you know, the idea that, you know, you might have to hunt for your supper or you might have to defend yourself against Indians or... Or the government. You know, I mean, I think I hear a lot of that on certainly on the right, uh, about how, well, if the government ever, you know, decides to get all crazy on us, we need ways of protecting ourselves. And, and there is, there are plenty of statements, uh, that the founding fathers have made that, that would back that up. And there were things like Shays rebellion and the, the whiskey rebellion. And, um, uh, then there was the, the, the late ugliness in the, the early 1860s. Um, which would all tend to tend to support that sort of thing that that yeah there is something uh, well to ingrained, me ingrained in us in America about yeah. gun ownership and I and I and I will tell you I don't exactly get it and and I think what you're talking about is is changing that that culture and yeah I I, I, I would I, say changing a paranoid mindset but anyway yeah. But but yeah, I think, and that's that's what you run up against is that you can call it. It's certainly a culture. I would call it uh, uh, paranoia and, and and so forth. But but yeah, changing that is very difficult, essentially. So that's that. I think that's why this is such a frustrating issue is because there is no good solution. I don't see politically anything happening on the national level that's going to make any kind of a difference. And that that's just. I think that just makes me so sad. It's just frustrating as hell. So. My, 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 and again, this, I won't call this a solution because it's not a solution. Um, but my response would be, we ought to allow people, uh, to carry concealed weapons and, and, uh, have, you know, people who are willing and able, uh, to react and defend in those kind of situations. I think the experience you've seen in states that have passed concealed weapons, uh, a lot of this happened in the early to mid nineties. There was a, there was a, you know, the argument that it's going to turn things into the wild west, that that hasn't really happened. And in fact, you see more of these, these shootings in places than the few places where you can't carry concealed weapons, the gun-free zones, for example. Uh, and, I, you know, my last thing is, is this is just kind of a personal example. My wife uh, works at uh, uh, Baldwin-Wallace University, um, where you and I graduated. Mm -hmm. And uh, she works in the administration building in the very front office and uh, she's gone through training of, of, you know, what do you do if someone were to come in? And the solution that was recommended is, like, you throw stuff like staplers and office stuff at, right. at the gun. Um, but we, we have in, in that same building sitting right next to her, uh, we have, there's, like, a special student veterans uh, uh, folks. And she said, boy, I'd feel a lot better if these guys were allowed to carry weapons. These, these are people who are, uh, like yourself, you know, 
a veteran of our armed services who would have been trained, who are responsible, uh, who we don't have to worry about uh, shooting stuff up. But if they were willing, I mean, would have have people there who would be able to respond uh, if right. if something happened. Well, I think, and I, my response to that is that sounds really good in theory, but when uh, but in in practice, in reality, what we find is that even trained police officers miss most of the time when they're shooting in this kind of situation and civilians miss even more and get freaked out even more. And so the chances for collateral damage and other things are even greater. And of course, you're just putting more guns into the situation. So this is one of these things I think that theoretically seems like a good idea, but doesn't really seem to pan out in reality. So you'd rather you'd rather everybody just stick with their staplers. Well, and it's uh, yeah, that, I mean that's obviously a, an exaggeration of it. You're talking about I think it's called Alice training, and I have a, a friend yes, who does yes. that. And and you know that's supposedly that's really kind of a last resort sort of thing. The first thing you try to do, I believe, is to try to get out of the area, uh, right. to try to barricade and and things like that. And 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 so I think. The danger is if you put more guns into a gun situation, you tend to get more deaths, not fewer deaths, I believe, is, is what, uh, is what the, the research suggests. And so that's why I, I'm, a little, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with that sort of thing. But I, I can understand I its appeal. If you, if you harden those targets, I think you'll, they'll, be, they'll be less attractive. Um, but I guess that's, I mean, gosh, we could have a whole other show on this because I also want to talk about the yeah, media stuff. Let's, let, in fact, does, does that drive this? But that's maybe for another show. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, one other story I'm hoping we can get to is talking about going from uh, bad to bad to worse, Syria. Syria's been in the news a lot. Uh, and, and Vladimir Putin, who definitely shouldn't have guns of any sort, I don't think. But uh, on Sunday it was, so a week ago today, he announced that he had reached an understanding with his good buddies uh, uh, Syria and Iran, also with Iraq, to share intelligence about the, uh, the Islamic State. Then on Monday, he gave a speech to the UN where he basically said that President Obama is screwing up uh, everything in Syria, and there's a new sheriff in town, Sheriff Putin, and he and his uh, he and his buddies in Iran and and Syria and in uh, Assad's government are going to clean things up. Well, and it, it it's hard to argue with uh, his analysis of the situation. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think we can both agree. I, I, I think we do both agree that, uh, that President Obama's Syria policy has been uh, a complete mess. It's been a total disaster uh, and has been almost entirely ineffective. Wow. Well, I, I, I really yeah. couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. I, I would I would just you know, say, look, I, I, I saw this coming a, a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, when the, when the red line and then the – uh, the Russians came in and, and were going to help with uh, monitoring the chemical weapons and so forth. Uh, at that point, I think we eventually we essentially ceded uh, that whole uh, area to uh, uh, to the Russians and ensured that uh, Bashar al-Assad will would remain in power. Yeah. So, just just to give people a little background, because whenever whenever the Middle East comes up, it gets very confusing. Very. Very fast. The idea of this uh, alliance, uh, uh, Iran and Syria and Russia, this kind of goes back, as so many of these things in the Middle East do, to the Cold War era. Uh, of course, the U.S. has uh, was in the midst, in the middle of the 20th century, was very active in the Middle East, doing little coups or encouraging coups and and so forth. And we did that sort of thing both in Syria and in Iran too. And so they're united in our hatred 
of the United States, certainly. And, of course, during that point in time, the then-Soviet Union was more than happy to kind of ally with people who hated the United States. And so these are these are uh, things that go back quite a few generations at this point. And so they're kind of a natural alliance here as well. Um, also, I think we talk about the Middle East, everyone gets the Sunni and Shiite sort of thing confused. I know I do. In fact, for years I got confused, and I finally figured out a way to remember it. Uh, both Iran, this this <laughs> is both well, yeah, this is good. Both Iran and Iraq are Shia. Everyone else is Sunni. I mean, in terms of the population, easy to remember because Iran, Iraq, Shia, four letter, four letters, simple device. Uh, now Assad, who the Assad's been ruling in Syria for quite a while now, he actually is uh, he actually is Shia. But the vast majority of his country is Sunni, and so you and and uh, the. Uh, and I think you could point out that the the uh, Sunnis essentially were in charge under Saddam Hussein. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it, it gets it gets very confusing between all the Cold War stuff and the sectarian stuff. But the the simple way to put it is, we it's been a mess for a long time, and it's not as easy to extricate ourselves from that mess as we would like. So it's not like there was a simple solution here that President Obama didn't just, you know, why hasn't he done this simple thing? Because there is no simple solution to this that or there is no good solution to this that doesn't involve, I think, troops on the ground. And that's definitely off the table. Right. Well, and I would say that there, there might not be a simple solution now, but there could have been some things that, that could have been done to not get us into this. Such as? Such as not drawing red lines that we weren't going to enforce. Okay. Yeah. Uh, doing half measures, having um, uh, the Secretary of State uh, carry uh, threaten uh, strikes that would be, uh, in his words, uh, unbelievably small. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that sort of. Yeah. Well, I think the problem uh, is, you know, I think that it's a problem of credibility. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that. Uh, uh, Putin sees Obama as uh, as a wimp, and Obama sees Putin as a thug. And so, when a wimp threatens a thug, the thug tends not to listen. So, the whole no red line thing. Maybe if it would have been George W. Bush who had said that, that would have had a little more credibility. But President right. Obama tried to be a very different sort of person when it came to use of force in international relations in, in the Middle East. And I think that really hurt him in that sense because he's just inherently less believable. Right. Well, and, and, and I think uh, for the rest of the world, uh, Putin is pretty believable. At least in uh, terms of threatening to do awful stuff, they believe he'll right. do that. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he say what you want about him and the, the dude follows through. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, so. <laughs> That's, well, I mean, that's, and, that's I think the problem that we have. We, if and, you're going to make uh, threats, you need to be able to to deliver on them. But in a way, I think Putin's right in the sense that our strategy of trying to, because of course the Assad government is fighting ISIS, and mm-hmm. we want to fight both ISIS and the Assad government at the same time, which turns out to be just about impossible. We've we've failed after spending hundreds of millions of dollars. We've fielded almost no U.S. trained troops. We just can't. Which understand which which makes sense because it's a a kind of a conflicting sort of thing we're trying to do. Whereas what Russia is saying is, well, how about if we just worry about fighting ISIS now, and then we can deal with the Assad thing later on. And that certainly, from a strategic standpoint, makes more sense. Although we don't want to do anything to support Assad, so. 
Right. We're kind of stuck. Again, my, my position would have, would be if we had been more forceful, uh, more willing to stand up, more willing to arm uh, Syrian rebels who were, were favorable to the U.S., uh, you wouldn't have had the ISIS presence uh, that you have there that's, that's, that's grown so quickly. Right. And we would have someone on the ground that we could actually arm. I mean, I think there was the estimate that, that we have something like 50 Syrian rebels who we have trained uh, and are good to go, but uh, yeah, for like five hundred million dollars or something like that, or yeah, ridiculous. Right. But, but they're really good. There was, there was <laughs> one. Guys, yeah, these guys are total badasses. There, there, <laughs> there was one interesting thing. I don't know if you caught this, but uh, uh, President Obama said when he hears people offering up what he called half baked ideas as if they're solutions, you know, he says, well, how exactly are you going to do that? And he says, and typically what you get is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And someone pointed out, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, who used to be your secretary of state, uh, suggested a no fly zone in Syria. And what do you think about that? And he said, I love his response. He said, Hillary Clinton is not half baked in terms of her approach to these problems. But I also think there's a difference between running for president and being president. Yeah. Yeah, oh, kind no, of a little slam on Hillary. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, his vice president's thinking about getting into the race and so forth. So maybe there's a little, you know, certainly no love lost between those two. And from 2008, maybe, I don't know. So that I thought that was kind of kind of fun, exactly. Because as, as I'm sure listeners know, that Hillary Clinton is neither uh, my nor your favorite politician, certainly. No, no not at all. all. But anyway, on, on the lighter side, let's 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 talk about something more uplift. Let's talk about the Pope a little bit more. Right, right. And you I, a- I, I am thrilled as as last uh, on our last show. Uh, I think I made the suggestion that the Pope ought to visit with Kim Davis. Yes, and, you uh, did. If they hadn't already. You were listened to. Your voice. You know, clearly the Pope or someone in the Vatican is listening to the politics, guys. Thank you very much, guys. Maybe you could, maybe you could, you know, tweet uh, a few things about us, get our, get the numbers up. But we do appreciate it. Yeah. And and it, apparently, uh, yes, the Pope did actually meet with Kim Davis. Now, the the specifics of that meeting are are still in dispute. Kim Davis's attorney seems to think it was a much more heartfelt and sort of uh, inspiring thing than the Pope's people, who basically said it was just like kind of a uh, what's it called a grabbing, grabbing, grabbing greet. That yeah. can't be right. You know, receiving just, line. Yeah, type, basically type a receiving line thing. thing. But uh, um, no, and, and I, I guess what what <laughs> what troubles me, and we'll probably never know exactly what happened uh, in that exchange. Uh, but at first, the Vatican was was really sort of reluctant to even wade into this or comment on it, uh, and only reluctantly said, "Oh yeah, yeah, well, okay, we did we did meet." And then uh, the Davis, you know, thing was well, he, they met and he ex- expressed support for mm-hmm. her position. Um, and I think I mean he said something like, "I my prayers are with you," but but that's the kind of thing you expect. Yeah, the Pope, yeah, the Pope say, says right? that to everyone essentially. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. he also met with uh, you know he also met with a, a gay guy who he'd known for quite a number of years. It was a student of his, a good friend, and he gave him a hug. I don't think that was a, you know, it was a statement in support of gay marriage exactly. In fact, from what I heard, that the Vatican folks did not want to politicize his visit at all. And there was an archbishop, Archbishop uh, Vagano in the U.S., who set up this meeting, kind of unbeknownst to the uh, the Vatican folks. 
and he might be in a little bit of hot water for this. In fact, he's turning 75 in a few months, and apparently that's the age at which which bishops have to submit a formal request to the Vatican asking for permission to resign, and then the Vatican decide whether or not to accept that or not. And so maybe this guy might be on his way out for politicizing a visit that the Pope supposedly they didn't want to politicize, which sounds weird in a sense because certainly the Pope's comments about global warming uh, and immigration were pretty damn political, but apparently didn't want to politicize it in terms of gay marriage, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, what I thought was, was funny, and, and uh, I, I totally respect the Pope and taking the, the Christian um, uh, idea – of, of meeting with people from all walks of society and, and Jesus, Jesus would uh, approve. you know, he, he met with sinners. Uh, uh, he, he, he had dinner and, and, uh, you know, lepers. tax collectors the and, guy met with lepers. and visited yeah. the lepers and so forth. Yeah. The, the difference is that, that struck me as funny is, uh, Jesus was pretty out, out uh, open and upfront about this. Uh, you never, you didn't, there's nothing in the Bible saying, uh, look, but yeah, I met with the lepers, but it was just in a receiving line. <laughs> <laughs> they just kind of came through, yeah. and we said hi, and I said bless you, and then that was it. Um, uh, you didn't, you didn't see the backpedaling, right? Which uh, <laughs> you do from the Vatican. Well, yeah, well, Jesus didn't have the Vatican to contend with, you know. So right, yeah. he didn't, and again, you didn't have a, a whole big uh, communications operation that I would imagine the Vatican has. Um, uh, but uh, my goodness, if if we're going to meet with the most despised of of our society, I mean. Uh, uh, Kim Davis would be right up there. And <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think it's kind of a much ado about not a whole, uh, not a whole heck of a lot actually. So, but, uh, but hey, you know, we're we're running a little long, but there was one story that I felt we really had to get in. You 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 sort of tease it to me, and and I I'm dying to hear about the details. So something about this, a this is, goat. Yeah, this is important. This was uh, reported in uh, Politico last week, and it has to do with the. Um, uh, Florida Libertarian Party. Um, there is the, uh, the chairman of the Florida Libertarian Party, Adrian Wiley, resigned uh, to protest his uh, the, the party's U.S. Senate candidate, uh, the rival of, of uh, supporting eugenics, and being expelled from a cult group for sadistically dismembering a goat in a ritualistic sacrifice. Wow. So again, he, he goes after this. Now, the, the guy, because was expelled from the cult for dismembering the goat. So the cult group um, does not approve of ritualistically dismembering, or maybe he did it wrong? I don't know. I think I think he did it wrong. Yeah, that would probably be... The candidate uh, goes by the adopted name of Augustus Sol Invictus. Of course he does, yeah. Uh, which, which translates loosely into uh, Invincible Sun Emperor. Yes, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I'd he, vote for he, that uh, guy. Oh, yeah, that's, he, he should hold public office. Okay. Um, uh, he responded, and this is this is his quote, uh, I have never dismembered a goat in my life. I have performed <laughs> animal sacrifices as part of my religion, Invictus said. I was expelled from the order from political reasons, and animal sacrifice was part of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> now that's a quote you don't hear. That's a representation. Oh, that's very the, impressive. Uh, chairman of the Libertarians. Got to say though, I just I love the name. I'm wondering if maybe I could, you know, Invincible Sun Emperor. Doesn't that sound good? It does. It, it's it got does. a ring to it, you know. But but wow, that that's that's uh, that's. I wonder what this guy's future is going to be. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, he's gonna he's gonna have to uh, make up some some uh, some uh, lost face here with the uh, cult community for yeah, that could be rough. Apparently, apparently screwing up the uh, goat sacrifice. Yeah, maybe he could maybe he could demonstrate that you know that he knows how to sacrifice goats properly. Just put up a YouTube video or something like that. I think <laughs> just just an idea. But I really do feel for the Invincible Sun Emperor here. Yep, he might yep. be getting a bum rap, so uh, we'll have to keep tabs on that story. I think you know, see if we yep. get any Libertarian more. Libertarian Party of Florida, definitely. Uh, I expect that sort fun of fun group of people as you can get. So, all right, well, hey, that that about does it for this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail dot com. That's politicsguys one word at gmail dot com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. The Politics Guys will be back next weekend. We hope you'll join us.